So we are in this series called Fully His, and it's a series that's based on a really remarkable document, the document that we call the Book of James, or the letter that James wrote. James was the half-brother of Jesus, same mother, different father, and James grew up with Jesus. He saw Jesus. He knew Jesus. And when Jesus started going around doing his thing that we tend to think of with Jesus, doing the miracles and, and speaking and teaching and doing all that stuff, James was skeptical. He didn't buy into it. He didn't, he didn't think this was really uh, trustworthy, that Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah, uh, the, 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 the deliverer, the messenger, the one who was coming to rescue the people. It all seemed a little bit far-fetched to him. And he thought Jesus was maybe losing his marbles, but something turned him around, and that something was seeing Jesus risen from the dead. In fact, seeing Jesus risen from the dead was so convincing that for James, it made no sense to be anything but a sold-out follower of Jesus. He couldn't fathom how people could be kind of half in, half out. Sort of like, you know, Christians on a Sunday and not so Christian during the week. For James, that made no sense at all. If Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus has done what we know he's done, then we should be fully his. And that fully hisness in our lives should show itself in lots of practical ways. So as James wrote this letter, which was really early on, just a few years after Jesus was here, he wrote a letter that, as you read it, on, on the surface, it's incredibly practical. It addresses all sorts of practical issues, but underneath, there's this driving desire that he has for that relationship with God to be real, for there to be an absolute sold-out, committed uh, Christian life going on that then manifests in the practical stuff. James became a massively significant leader in Jerusalem. In fact, he was there for about 30 years after Jesus was gone back to heaven. James was one of the most significant leaders. He was known for how devoted he was to God. He was known for his prayer life. In fact, when James was killed, Josephus, the Jewish historian, wasn't a Christian at all. I think it was Josephus that made a reference to the fact that when James was killed, he was such a holy man that that could have been one of the reasons that then Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. James had a huge reputation for being fully his, fully committed to Christ. And so last week and the week before, we've gone through James chapter 1. And what we find in that first chapter is that he just jumps right into the nitty-gritty realities of life. He says, look, you're going to face trials. You're going to face difficulties. All sorts of trials are going to come, different kinds of trials. And what I want you to do, he writes, is, is to kind of add it all up. Make, do the sums, figure it out, and come to the conclusion that these are a joyful thing. They don't feel joyful, but they're a joyful thing. Why? Because they have a purpose. These trials that we face in life, health issues, financial struggles, uh, difficulties at work, loss of work, uh, all the kind of complexities of life, and let's not uh, kid ourselves, losing your keys and you know, all the kind of little stuff. These are the trials that, that we experience every day as well, aren't they? Even the littlest thing, it's part of a bigger plan to shape us and to, to, to mold us. And, and what James says is that trials lead to steadfastness, and steadfastness, if we let it do its work in us, it will help us to become mature. Now, how do you go about that? In chapter one, he's kind of covered that. He said, okay, you've got to look to God for the perspective. 
Ask him for wisdom to cope with that, to be able to understand what's going on. And don't go kind of mixing in worldly thinking and your own kind of ideas. Don't, you know, do all that stuff. Just totally sell out. Say, God, I want your perspective. Don't rely on your own resources. He says, you can trust God. God's a good father who gives good gifts. And if he gives a trial, then it's a purposeful good trial, and you can thank him for it. And remember, he's never going to give you a temptation. He's never going to try to trip you up. He's never going to do damage to you. He only wants to build you up. And so as you cry out to God, and you're asking him for wisdom, and you open your Bible, and you're reading it, and you're hearing it, and God is speaking to you, James says, don't do that kind of human reaction thing you do. You know, when someone comes to you and says, I want to pick a bone with you, and, and inside we go, don't you dare. James says, don't do that when the Word of God is speaking to you. Don't get all angry and start chatting over it and defending yourself, but instead receive God's Word with meekness. Accept what it says to you. Don't, don't kind of make up your own explanation of what's going on so that you can cope and feel good about yourself. When God wants to, to poke and challenge, remember, He's a good Father. He loves you. And if he's putting his finger on something, he's got a reason to do it. And James says, accept the word of God. And as you look into the word of God, he says, it's like a mirror. This is a really important point. Because the danger for all of us is that as we read a book like James, because it's so practical, the danger is that we'll just focus at that level and we'll take it as a to-do list. Right, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to not do this and not do that. And here's my kind of life manual And we can then take those instructions and go away and try our hardest to do what it says. And I think that is to misunderstand what James is on about. You see, if you look into the mirror intently, what James says is what happens is you get to see yourself. And as we look into the Bible for ourselves and we read it and we listen to it and we ponder it and we think about it, it shows us what we're like and what we discover about ourselves is how profoundly needy we are, how, how profoundly inadequate we are, how, how consistently we can fail to follow through on what the Bible says. And so if we don't think of the Bible as a mirror and really spend time letting God speak to us, we'll just treat it as a manual. And you don't stare and you know, devour a manual. You just have a quick look, spot something, solve the problem, right? Oh, that light means exhaust emissions. Great, I'll get that sorted. We don't do quiet times in manuals. And so for James, he says, no, 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 the Bible's like a mirror. And you look into it intently, and as you look into it intently, it shows you who you are, and also it shows you who he is. God, the loving Father who gives good gifts. And so we've got to make sure that we're aware of that underneath stuff so we don't get caught up in just applying the practical stuff as if we can do that on our own. For James, there's this dynamic relationship going on where we cry out to God, where he speaks to us. It's not just a Christian practicing Christianity. It's a follower of Jesus in relationship with him. There's a lot of churches filled with a lot of people that wouldn't notice if God disappeared. We don't want to be like that. We want to be the kind of church that's made up of people, not that are special and have got it all together, but we know we're weak and we know we fail, but we've got a relationship with God. 
And he speaks to us through his word and we speak to him. And there's a dynamic to that. And so when you get to the end of James chapter 1, he says, okay, so this is what it's going to look like, true religion. Not the kind of fake plastic stuff. True religion is going to show itself in how you care for others and how you care to live for God. And from James 2 onwards, he's dealing with that. He's kind of saying, okay, let me spell that out. And so keeping in mind that dynamic relationship that James wants us to have, let's read James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, not as a kind of reading exercise, but to hear the Word of God to us. If you want to grab one of the church Bibles, uh, it's on page 1011, and uh, it's James chapter 2, so you'll see a big number 2 there on the right side. And we're going to read the first 13 verses. This is God's word to us. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly or church, and a a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So basically, he's getting into some really nitty-gritty kind of real-life stuff. He's talking about what happens here between about 3 o'clock and about, I was going to say 3.45, 3.50 on a Sunday afternoon. What, what happens when people walk in to the gathering of, of the church? It's kind of a simple level issue, isn't it? Kind of um, minor compared to other things, but it's major enough to get a whole chunk of Bible about it. So we want to think about that. And what he's saying here is that we should treat all others the way that we've been treated or treat all others with the love that you have received. All of them. So uh, right at the start, he kind of gives the example of, of these two men walking into church. One of them is wearing a really sharp suit, really expensive. You know, you can kind of smell the money as he walks in. There's the the gold on the fingers and the really expensive watch. And, you know, there's just that kind of look and vibe about the person that just radiates wealth and success and power and position. 
And then there's the other chap who comes in looking all shabby. Clothes that maybe don't fit quite right or have maybe been on a bit too long. Just not, not kind of impressive in any sense. And what James says is, okay, how are you going to treat those two people? He says, really, show no partiality. Do not treat one as worth more than the other. Actually, it's really understandable why you would, isn't it? Back in those days, just as today, uh, when people are are well-dressed, it tends to uh, communicate something. Success and uh, wealth and significance. Now, this is a person who can throw their weight around and get things done. This is a person who, who matters in the world's eyes. And our natural response to that is, is to think, okay, well, this guy who's well-dressed, he, there's going to be some benefits to hanging out with him and treating him well. Maybe he'll, you know, give in the offering. Maybe he'll, he'll add something, not just to the church, but to my life. You know, this, is a, this is a somebody. Oh, and then there's the other guy. And in this world's way of thinking... It's the the well-dressed that are significant and influential and that we want to get close to, and it's the shabbily dressed that we want to kind of steer clear of. You know, there's obviously issues there. And James says, okay, if that's the evaluation you're making, you've set yourself up as judges. Not just any judges, but judges with evil thoughts. Almost like saying, you're setting yourself up like a judge who's looking for a bribe. Because obviously, you know, when the suit comes in, there's more chance of, you know, some kind of something coming across the table, you know, and across your palm, and, you know, it might have some benefits. And so, so that's the way the world thinks. And James says, wait a second, how can you set yourself up as judges with evil thoughts? That doesn't make any sense if you're the community of people that represent God. Then he gives three reasons why we shouldn't show partiality to the rich. From verses 5 to 11, there are three reasons uh, following on, really from verses 1 to 4, where he's saying, do not be dazzled by the glory of people. Don't be dazzled by the bling of people as they come in wearing their gold rings and show favor to the rich. Three reasons why not from verses 5 to 11. First of all, verse 5, he says, listen. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? The way God thinks is actually different from the way the world thinks. Remember um, Paul. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And in his letter to the Corinthians, they were a bit caught up in kind of the way the world thinks about who's impressive and who's not. And in the first chapter, he starts saying to them, hang on a second. You're complaining because my message is not very impressive well, you're not very impressive. He says, look, look, at, look at yourselves. Not many of you were rich. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were kind of the high flyers of society because that's not God's way. God doesn't think like the world thinks. He doesn't come and say, right now, who are the brightest and who are the best? I want people who've been to Oxford or Cambridge and I want people that have got a good sum of money in the bank and a good salary and they can cut a fine figure for an interview. Those are the people that I want. That's not God's way, is it? No, no, remember what Jesus said? He said right at the start of his Sermon on the Mount, and I think this is what James is referring to here, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's quite significant. 
That's upside down thinking, right? That's not the way the world thinks. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, what does it mean to be poor in wallet? Let's just go really practical just for a second. Poor in wallet means that when you look inside, there's nothing there, right? Oh, wait, I've got a uh, Monopoly prize game board from McDonald's with no complete sets, so that's worthless. No credit cards, a couple of business cards, a Morrison's match and more card, but essentially nothing. Poor in wallet is when your wallet is empty, when you're financially bankrupt, when you've got nothing to offer. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Same thing, right? It means that you have nothing to bring to God to impress him. There's nothing about you, your background, your achievements. There's just a kind of an emptiness. Maybe for some of us, we're sitting here this afternoon and we're feeling, you know, kind of bankrupt in spirit. Oh, my life's a mess. Oh, I just can't succeed. Oh, I keep making the same mistake. Oh, if if people just knew what I'd done years ago or last week. And we're just sitting here and we're feeling really, really kind of weak and broken and inadequate. And in the world's eyes, if that showed, we would be worthless. But in God's eyes, what does he think? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because when we come to God with empty hands, we don't think that we can earn anything. When we come to God with our baggage and our sin and our failure and our mess-ups and our inadequacies and our really low self-esteem, when we come to God with that, God smiles because he recognizes in us somebody who might recognize in him just how much he wants to give. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so we might think the way the world thinks and think, you know, blessed are the rich in wallet, but God doesn't think that way. God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to choose the poor, the weak, the fishermen, the tax collector, the nobodies. And I'm going to give them everything. And so it makes no sense for us to honor the rich and dishonor the poor when God honors the poor. It's completely backwards. There's a second reason as well. Notice down in the second half of verse 6, as well as the way God views things, James gives a little bit of a reality check here, and he kind of says wealth brings issues, all right? Um, This is what he writes there, uh, second half of verse 6. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? He's saying, look, don't get all carried away by the dudes in sharp suits. They're the ones that tend to give you trouble. It tends to be the rich who throw their weight around. And now I'm not, I'm not anti-rich, right? Because actually all of us in comparison to the entire planet are super, super rich, no matter where we are on the scale in this community. So don't think I'm just having a go at rich people. We are rich people. And with richness, with riches, comes a temptation to feel like a bit of a God. I can buy that. I can own that. I can have my way. I can dress the way I please. I can live where I choose. With wealth comes a bit of a God complex. If we're not careful, we as Christians can fall into this. And what's the world going to be like? Give wealth to somebody who doesn't know God and there's going to be all sorts of baggage. And so let's not be seeing someone who's rich and going, ooh, that's lovely, isn't that special? Let me draw close to that person because that person's more likely to give you trouble, according to James, than somebody who's desperate and broken and needy. 
Now, actually, that's true not only in the world, it's true in churches, if I can be really blunt and honest. If you were to visit every church in this country and interview the people, I suspect what you would find is that in an awful lot of those churches, some of the most difficult, some of the most controlling, some of the most manipulative people are the rich people who think that they, by virtue of their success, have the right to throw their weight around. Wealth isn't all it's cracked up to be. Wealth brings issues. If you're, if you're wealthy, you know, don't panic about it. Don't you know, just drop your wallet on the floor or anything like that. Don't panic, but, but recognize there's a danger that comes with that. There's a stewardship that comes with that. And James is saying, okay, no, no, no. You don't want to be favoring the wealthy because God chooses the poor, and actually it's the wealthy that's, that they're the ones that are giving you a rough time. And thirdly, he says, remember the royal law from verse 8 down to verse 11. The royal law is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. When Jesus came, he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, on these two commands, the whole law turns. It's like these are the two hinges and the entire door of all the the kind of Old Testament command structure. The whole thing is hanging on these two. So love God and love neighbor and everything else falls into place. And here James is saying, okay, in light of that law alone, you don't want to be favoring one and therefore disfavoring the other. Love your poor neighbor as yourself. Treat them the way you would want to be treated. And you can't say, oh, it's just, just a minor detail or it's just one thing. He, he gives an example. He says, listen, okay, if you're going to get into that kind of comparing of law, laws business, you, God said do not murder and do not commit adultery, kind of the big two, right? You can't say, well, I haven't done the other. Like if I go out this week and I decide, you know what, I've had it with this person, I can't stand them anymore, I'm just going to kill them. And I kill them and I get arrested and I get brought to trial and I'm standing before the judge and the judge says, Peter Mead, you've been charged with the murder of so-and-so. I've got no one in mind, don't worry. And, and how do you plead? What difference does it make if I say, well, yeah, I killed them, but I haven't committed adultery? Oh, yeah, good point. All right, yeah, let him go. It doesn't work like that, does it? More realistically, if I'm driving home, okay, this is not totally realistic, but let's say I'm driving home doing 57 in a 30 and the policeman pulls me over and comes up to the window and says, excuse me, sir, do you realize you was doing 57 in a 30? How much is it going to help if I say, yes, I was, but usually I don't. Many times I haven't. And actually, I don't drop litter either. He's going to think I'm mad. You were breaking the law. You're a lawbreaker, right? And so James is saying, you can't kind of go, well, it doesn't matter about, you know, favoring the rich and not favoring the poor because, you know, you do the other stuff. That's not the way that it works. The royal law is love your neighbor as yourself, even if they're not well-dressed, even if they've got issues, even if there's an odor, love your neighbor as yourself, And so down through those 11 verses, we've kind of got a really practical little lesson that's probably a good thing for us to learn as a church, right? When somebody comes in, treat them the way you would treat anybody else, hopefully in a positive sense, right? 
And maybe this is on a superficial level, something that God wants us to hear. I remember early on, we made a, a big push about Trinity. Okay, how are we going to do church? We want to be a welcoming church and we're gonna, we want to do welcome team and we want to greet people and bring them in and, and show them where the refreshments are and introduce them to people. And we we want to make this a welcoming and a safe environment. And here's God's word saying, yes, that's a good idea, whoever they are. Maybe we need to Take this as a little nudge, as leadership, to put some energy back into that process. In the the few weeks before we started Trinity, we had a a little window of time where quite a few of us had the chance to visit other churches. And we went to other churches kind of looking and learning. And we learned different things and we we saw things we liked and we thought, oh, I never thought of doing it that way. Let's do that, you know. And, And it was a really good experience especially the places where they welcomed us warmly. But I have to say, there was one or two where there was no welcome at all, where we walked in and we felt kind of like awkward intruders. And it was such a kind of striking experience. I've visited hundreds of churches in my life, but actually I've always been, I was thinking about it, I've always been either the son of the preacher, because I've been to lots of churches with my dad, or I've been the preacher. I don't know why. Churches are really nice to preachers. And so I walk in, you know, and everyone's really nice and friendly. You know, do you need anything? Have a drink, have a microphone. I mean, they do all sorts of crazy things for preachers. But come in as a normal person and not be treated well feels horrible, feels awkward, feels, I'm intruding, I shouldn't be here. So on a completely practical level, James is onto something, isn't he? He's saying, come on. If you're going to reflect the character of God as a community of his people, then treat everyone with the the same love that you've been treated with. Treat them as if they're the most important person in the world in that moment. Welcome them, care for them, love them. And I suppose we could read this at the kind of superficial level of a manual for church living, and we could say, okay, there it is. There's There's the instruction. Let's do that. And we could kind of grit our teeth and we could put plans in place and, you know, we could kind of get our acts together. But I suspect that if that's all we do, in a few weeks it will fade. What's it going to take for that to be ongoing, for that to be the new normal? We've got to get below the surface. We've got to get to the why and not stick at the what of what James is writing. And so I want to take us back to verse 1 and point something out to us that we may have missed. In James 2 verse 1, he says this, My brothers, show no partiality, we've covered that, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, notice this phrase at the end, the Lord of glory. Verse 2. Suppose a man walks in wearing a fine gold ring, fine clothing and a gold ring. Literally, I, I quite like this here. Uh, it's a word in the original that means gold-fingered. He goes all James Bond on us, right? So if a man walks in and he's gold-fingered, His glory is shining and resplendent and attractive and and gets your attention. But what has he said in verse 1? You're holding on to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, comma, the Lord of glory. Glory, glory. Interestingly, it doesn't actually say the Lord of glory there. What it says is, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. 
And so they have a bit of a discussion as they translate our Bible saying, okay, is that uh, faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, a description which is true, but I think it's stronger than that. And they say, no, no, this is like a title that's kind of elevated and separated. So they add the Lord of glory to kind of help it just stand on its own. But really, it's as you hold on to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory The glory, it sounds like a description of God, doesn't it? It sounds like that Old Testament, kind of the the, the special presence of God dwelling in the midst of his people who is so perfect and so pure and so loving and so great that, that that it's resplendent and there's a shininess to it. It's like that other Old Testament word that, that is used for glory that means weightiness, heaviness, like, like the, the weight of the gold. You know, if someone walks in wearing lots of plastic, we're not impressed. But if Mr. T walks in, all the weight around his neck, you go, oh, look at him with his gold. The bling, there's kind of a weightiness to that. And that's a concept in the Bible that, that is really uh, ultimately a reference to God. Forget the Mr. T image now. God is the glory. The ultimate, weighty, significant, substantial being. And the glory radiates from him. It, it speaks of the perfection of his character and who he is. And if you read through the Bible and you study the glory of God, it's fascinating. As you come to the New Testament, you discover that Jesus is the perfect representation of the glory of God. And so I just want us to think about Jesus in light of these two verses just for a moment. Because we're going to be tempted to evaluate people based on the shininess, the glory of their hands. How gold-fingered are they? And James is saying, no, hang on a second. As you hold on to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory himself. What were Jesus' hands like? Just let's use the gold finger image and think about Jesus' hands. Were they powerful and strong? Was was that what it means, the, the glory of God? And I suppose in a sense that's true. Just thinking purely about Jesus for a moment. When Jesus came to the temple in John 2 and he saw the way the temple was being abused, he, he got very angry about it with his righteous anger. And he pulled together, he made a whip of cords. And he literally imagined these strong hands that, that were carpenter's hands, like not carving little animals, like proper carpenter, like building houses, like house frames and lintels. I mean, he had strong hands and strong arms, and he pulled together a whip of cords and chased the people out of the temple. There's definitely strength in the hands of Jesus, but is that what Jesus' hands are known for? Not really. As you take the time to think about the hands of Jesus revealing the glory of God, what do we find? We find hands that lifted up Peter's mother-in-law when she was sick, who who raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Hands that reached out and touched blind eyes and touched deaf ears. Uh, Same hands reached out and touched lepers who thought they would never be touched again before they died. These were hands that took the bread And broke it and gave thanks for it and fed a multitude. These were hands that took the bread and broke it and gave thanks and spoke about dying. The hands of Jesus at the Passover. The hands of Jesus on Good Friday stretched out and nailed to the wood. 
All the strength that he had, the strength of the one who'd created everything, stretched out in absolute weakness on a cross. He who was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. He had everything, and he gave it up so that we could be rich through him. That's, that's the hands of Jesus. That's glory, the glory of God revealed just by thinking about the hands of Jesus. And so James, I think, is giving us this contrast to say, okay, Jesus, the glory, look to him and don't be dazzled by the bling of people around you. Don't be dazzled by what you see in others. Because if you're dazzled by him, what, what, what happens? If you're dazzled by the character of God revealed in Christ, then when someone comes in who's not very well dressed or comes in with a distinct odor, you won't even have to think about it. You'll sit down next to them and maybe put your arm around them and talk to them and care for them and love them as if they're the most important person in the world. Why? Because that's what Jesus would do. That's what Jesus has done for us. And so James says, look, with your eyes fixed on the Lord of glory himself, Don't show partiality. Don't be looking for bribes because God wouldn't. Be so dazzled by the wonder of the character of God revealed in Christ that it shows in the very practical issues of how you interact with other people. And then he comes down the last couple of verses. And he says here in verse 12, So speak... And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Let's just ponder that for a moment. The law of liberty for James, I don't think, is a reference to the the heavy burden of the law in the Old Testament. He's not saying, you know, this is a kind of a petrifying verse. Verse 12 is not petrifying. It's, It's freeing. You're going to be judged under the law of liberty. So speak like it and act like it. What he's saying is, Jesus has come and he's made a way, a way for you to not be burdened with this law that you could never fulfill, but he's transforming you from the inside by the spirit living within, the law written inside so that you want to love people and you want to love God. And as you love God and love people and give yourself away, just go for it. Speak as if that's the reality. Live as if that's the reality. You're going to be judged under that standard, which actually means I think you cannot fail. Love God, love others. Give yourself away. Go up to someone and try to encourage them. Even if you fumble, even if you kind of make a mess of it, you're not going to be judged for that. Because now what Christ has given to us is a freedom and a liberty that we could never find when it was all about our performance trying to live up to a standard. But verse 13 is a scary one. Verse 13 is a warning. He says, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So if you're one of those people that that says, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to do it my way. I don't need to receive mercy from God in Jesus Christ. I'm just going to go for it. And you just go for it, whatever that looks like. And you live life on your terms. Your life won't be characterized by the kind of mercy that comes from a life uh, that's gripped by Jesus. 
And so because you're somebody who ultimately, by God's measure, will have shown no mercy, when judgment day comes, there will be no mercy shown. The Bible's very serious about judgment. And if we try and do life in our own strength, if we try and do life saying, no, thank you, I don't need Jesus, then ultimately we're going to stand before him and he's going to let us have what we've always wanted, a life without Jesus, a life without his mercy. That's a terrifying prospect, isn't it? But for those of us who know Jesus, for those of us who are gripped by the reality of those hands stretched out on the cross for us, then what does that look like in, in, in reality? James finishes the passage with a cry of victory. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy God's mercy through us so that when someone walks in and we show mercy to them, we're participating in the great mercy of God. And even that act of kindness is part of the great victory of Jesus over judgment itself. You see, James wants us to be gripped by that glimpse of Jesus. So if we put the the main idea back up on the screen again... Treat all others with the love you have received. In light of all of that, we've got to add something. Treat all others with the love you have received because you are dazzled by the glory of the God who became poor. Not because it's the right thing to do, not because you're trying really hard, but because instead of seeing the state of other people's hands and the wealth they flash or don't flash by what they wear on their hands. You're so dazzled by the glory of God revealed in Jesus hanging on the cross. Therefore, you love others with the love that you've received. You show mercy to others, the same mercy that's been shown to you. And here at Trinity Chippenham, we, we don't want to be a church that, that kind of uh, it gets excited about the way people dress or even about the way we dress. We want to be a church that's excited about Jesus and so excited, so dazzled by him that we then reflect his character in the way we treat others, not making judgments based on how they dress or how they look or color of skin or anything like that, but seeing people as infinitely valuable because that's the way he sees us. We are those, I hope and pray, dazzled by the character of God revealed in Christ. So let's treat one another and others with the love that we've received. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd forgive us for all the times when Deep inside us, there's an evaluation of those around us. And in, in, in that moment, we don't even think consciously about it, but in that moment, we set ourselves up as judges. Lord, forgive us for that. And instead, would you fix our gaze on Jesus Christ, the glory, the glorious one. Would you fix our gaze on him and the wonder of his character, which reveals, Father, your character to us. And let that so grip us and so transform us that we see others the way you see us and the way you see others. Valuing and loving and caring and reflecting a God whose glory is 
is, is a loving glory, a kind, compassionate, reaching down to the lowest of the low kind of glory. And as we take communion in a couple of minutes, we pray that our eyes, our gaze would be fixed on the hands that took that bread, the hands that were stretched out on the cross for us, the hands that reach out to embrace us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.